You are listening to sermon audio from Red Tree Church. For more information about our church or to find more sermon audio, visit redtreechurch.com. Good morning. How are you guys today? I hope that you recognize the the intention and the theme of the build-up this morning. Um, I know that when we, we come in, we're kind of getting settled and um, trying to kind of find our place, and we come in at different, different moments in the gathering, but um, it, it really was good for my heart when we read that lamentation, how does God meet us in our doubts? And we immediately went in from, from that and, and the, 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 uh, uh, the lamentor talking about uh, God meeting us in our afflictions and then going into the song, I am not alone, because uh, a lot of us probably feel pretty alone these days at times, right? We've always experienced that aloneness at some time in our life. And then immediately after that, singing no longer slaves, hallelujah, that we are no longer slaves. As much as the world tries to drag us down and as much as the world has to offer that we'll talk about here in a minute, we're no longer slaves. We're no longer bound to what the world has to offer. Jesus has freed us from that. And can we just say amen to that? Amen. Praise God for that. So as we, as we intentionally build up this morning to, to this truth of, of lamentation, that we are not alone, that God is in the messiness of our lives, that we are no longer a slave, we get to gaze at the beauty and the wonder of Jesus in our passage this morning. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 9. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13 this morning. And as you're getting there, let me, let me brief you on where we've been the last week. Uh, if you need a Bible, they're in the rows at the end. Feel free to grab one of those if you'd like. And if you don't have a Bible on your own, feel free to take one of those. We say that every week and we mean it. Uh, feel free to grab those. They're going somewhere because we have fewer Bibles now than we used to. Uh, somebody's taking them, so that's a good thing. Maybe it's the school. That'd be awesome too. But as you, wait, as you make your way to that text this morning, um, I want to remind you of a few things that Sam preached about last week in the last part of chapter 8. I want to remind you of a couple of things. So last week was the apex of the Gospel of Mark. Everything was pointing to this confession of Peter. Right? Jesus asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Who am I? And Peter says, you're the Christ. Right? You are the Christ, which is to say, you are the anointed one. You are the holy one of God. You are the Messiah. Pretty profound stuff. Everything in the Gospel of Mark was leading up to that moment of truth, the confession of Peter. He finally gets it. The disciples seem to finally get this idea that Jesus is the Christ. And so Jesus says, yes, don't tell anybody. Don't mention that to anybody. In fact, I'm going to unfold for you a few things that you don't know about me. You understand that part, that aspect of who I am, but I'm going to unfold a few things to you for you that you don't know about me. And he begins to say that as the Christ, as the Messiah, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be murdered, but I will rise again from the dead. And Peter, of course, rebukes him. It's not Peter, it's Satan, because Jesus then rebukes and says, get behind me, Satan, because that's the last thing Satan wants. 
The last thing Satan wants is for Christ to die and put a stamp on him and sin and death. And so through Peter, he's trying to push back on the Messiah. And Jesus rebukes Peter and he says, no, 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 I must die. I will rise again. I will ascend. And this will all start to make sense to you to the extent that you will be called and will willingly surrender to die and take up your own cross, Peter. And that's what's been happening in last week's passage. And he ends... The passage last week in the first verse of chapter 9, and he says, Some of you standing here will not taste death death until you see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Brief, brief summary. If you weren't here, if you missed it, we always encourage you to go online, our website, have our sermons. If you don't have our app, we have an app. If you don't know how to use that, please let someone know. They are accessible on that app. We would love for you to use that and stay current with the sermons. Last week was was really good and and beneficial as we build our way through the Gospel of Mark, halfway through now. So that's where we pick it up this morning in chapter 9. I'm going to begin in verse 1. We'll go to verse 13. Before we do, let me pray, and then I will read, and then we'll talk about this passage. Lord, I feel wholly inadequate this morning to bring the Word of God. So we need you, Spirit. We need you in this room to awaken our hearts to clarify the message, Lord, that the word that you want spoken through this passage is what you want for our people and not what a human voice wants, God. We desperately need to hear from your spirit, God, to draw us in to the truths of this passage, to apply it to our hearts, and then to leave here today as not just being readers of the word, but being doers of your word, God, that is enabled through the grace of that comes through the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of your Spirit in our lives, God. And we desperately need that this morning. We trust you and we thank you for these things. Amen. Amen. Follow along with me, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 9. Mark says, And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. How is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things? 
and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God stands forever. I want to start this morning by saying something very plainly, and that is what the point is of this text. Right up front, Mark is writing to the first century believers in the church of Rome. We know that from from past messages in this, this gospel. Writing to the first century Christians in Rome who were at the time experiencing trial, suffering, persecution. Mark was giving them a glimpse. Mark was giving these folks a glimpse, just as Jesus is giving James, John, and Peter a glimpse. And what that glimpse is, is it's a glimpse of Jesus' true nature. The glory of God as the Son of God. That's the glimpse that he's given. That's the glimpse that we're given. And that's, quite frankly, the point of the message today, or the point of the text today. The question is, why? Why does Mark provide the glimpse? Why does Jesus provide the glimpse? Why do we need today this glimpse? Well, in spite of whatever the world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you. That's the point. Of today's message. In spite of what the world has to offer to you, God has something immeasurably better for you. Now that may sound a little simplistic. It may sound a little a little bland, a little a little nebulous to some of you, but I, I believe that's what God has for us this morning as a result of this glimpse of glory that he's given us. So what I want to do as we go through this passage today is I want to, I want to present this in four different um, stages, if you will. I want to first talk about the event itself right? that we read, the transfiguration. I want to begin to talk about that first, and then we're going to move into the significance of Moses and Elijah, so the conversation that they had with Jesus Thirdly, I want to talk about the voice of God that we hear in this passage, the exhortation that we hear from God. And then lastly, we come back to reality as, as Jesus and his guys come down off the mountain. They're coming back to reality. I want to talk about the realization of that. So we're going to talk about the transfiguration, the conversation, the exhortation, and the realization today. First, let's talk about the transformation, the event itself. One, one writer called it the white flash of splendor. Verse 2 says that he was transfigured before them. Now, when I prayed earlier, I don't feel adequate to preach this message today. This is why. How do you adequately, adequately preach a message on the transfiguration when the writers of the gospel can't even get it right? I mean, they, they, they can't adequately describe it. Not that they didn't get it right, but words, human words can't describe what they saw. But the word itself, transfiguration, uh, the Greek word there is metamorphosis, which, which is to radically change. The best example that we have, of course, is that of a caterpillar changing into a butterfly. Right? The, the text describes it like this. Jesus' clothes became radiant. They became intensely white, and no one on earth could possibly bleach them any whiter than that. In Matthew's Gospel, he said that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes were as white as light. And in Luke's Gospel, he says that Jesus' face was, was visibly altered, and his clothes were dazzling white. 
Those are the descriptions of this amazing event. That's, as, that's all they can do is to describe it. They're trying to capture in this human word picture what this looks like. And the truth is, this is a singular event in history. There's nothing quite like this event in all of recorded history before then. There's no analogy that can be used. There's no stories like this. There's no extant writings that describe this. Nothing. There are some stories in Scripture that ancient writings also describe. There's nothing in ancient literature that comes close to this at all. Because it's never happened. Later, Peter... One of the witnesses describes this event in his letter, 2 Peter 1. He says, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what Peter says later on. He's writing in his letter in part to to respond to these twisted versions of the gospel Twisted versions of gospel truth that was going on in the church. And he's saying, no, 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 say what you might, teach what you might. I walked with this man. I heard his teachings. I experienced his power. I even witnessed his majesty. Another witness that we read of today, John says in his gospel, in John chapter 1, familiar passage, and the word of flesh became, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Later on in his gospel, John says the reason he's writing all these things is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So these writers point back to this as evidence of who Jesus says he is. Now there are many important truths about this event But the biggest, I think, is this change that takes place, this transformation, this metamorphosis that displays the true nature of Jesus. This is not an event that changed him from man to God. That's not what's going on here. right? This is not the event that changed Jesus from a man to God because there never was an event that changed Jesus from man to God. He always was God. And he always will be God, and he is on the throne, and he always will be on the throne, regardless of what's happening. Regardless of what's happening in our lives, in our country, in this world, Jesus is on the throne. This is who he is. Now, as believers, we are enabled by the Spirit of the living God to reflect the nature of God. Right? Those what's called his communicable attributes, where we're we're enabled by the Spirit of the Living God to reflect certain parts of the nature of God. And that's what Sam was talking about last week when he said that that verse two meant, or he said that what was meant by verse two that says, Some will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come with power. He was saying that we reflect the kingdom of God when we submit everything to Jesus. When we take up our cross to follow Jesus, we display the power of the kingdom of God in our lives. He said that's what was meant by that that verse, by verse 2. This event itself is also an answer to that that comment, that statement, that that you will not see, you will not taste death until you see the kingdom of God come with power. This is showing the kingdom of God coming with power in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So it's both and. 
It's this event, but it's also the fact the kingdom of God is worked out and lived out in our lives. And we will talk more about that as we move along today. But this transfiguration event for Jesus displays his very character and nature. It's the essence of who he is. It's the essence of God. It's deity dressed in a body. I referred earlier to this being a glimpse of glory. James, John, and Peter had this glimpse of glory. Mark's original readers had this glimpse of glory. And for us this morning, this is our glimpse of glory. Because do, do we not need a glimpse of glory? We need a glimpse of glory. We need some encouragement, some refreshment, some, some refinement, some exhortation, perhaps some rebuking. But it all needs to center on the glory of God, this glimpse of glory. Here's the thing about glimpses, though. By definition, glimpses are impermanent things, aren't they? They're brief. When you get a glimpse of something, it's there and it's gone. But they're often used, as it is in our text this morning, as encouragement in the face of adversity. Or even a sort of a wake-up call. For some of you today, you're in the midst of adversity and you need this glimpse. You need this encouragement that we have today, that God has for us today. For some of you today, to be honest, you need a wake-up call. You need to pay attention. You need to understand that what's going on in your life has purpose and meaning in your life. God is doing something in your life. You may not see it, I'm telling you, there's a reason you're here today to hear this message. Because in the midst of all the stuff you're going through, God is working. Listen, God is either refining you or he's drawing you to himself. Perhaps he's doing both. I believe that with my whole heart. There's a reason each and every one of you is sitting in this seat in a public middle middle school right now listening to this message. I believe that with my entire heart. Because God is sovereign. And there is a reason we're here to hear this message and to glimpse, uh, to, to, to stare at this glimpse of glory this morning. If you recall, the battle cry of the gospel of Mark is what? The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. That's the battle cry of the gospel of Mark. It goes all the way back to chapter 1. Some of you need to be reminded of that today. To repent and believe in the gospel because the kingdom of God is at hand. You need to hold on to that. You need to believe that. The transfiguration event displays and proves the true nature of Jesus as God himself. For the per- as himself. For the purpose of encouragement and exhortation. As I said, in spite of whatever the world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you. Today, The transfiguration is that something better. Because we're being molded into the likeness of our Jesus. 2 Corinthians 3 says, We are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Jesus was essentially saying that regardless of what the world has to offer, which are distractions, which are enticements, with our, which are affections to lure our hearts into, there's something better than all of that. That is a message we all need to hear. 
Now, I know it gets a little abstract when we say things like we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, right? It's, it's like, like, are we, are we going to get a new body one day? Yes, hallelujah, we are. We are going to get a new body one day. That, that is one way we are transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Is we will one day rid ourselves of these bodies. Can I please get an amen on that one? Another way to think about this, however, because that's to come. It's good that we look in the future, right? It's good that we look at these truths that will one day be, be a reality to us. However, we're still left here today. So another way to look at this in the here and now is when we walk, it, or another way we, we think of this in the here and now is when we walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. And what does that look like? When we display the fruit of the Spirit, what does that look like? looks like love and joy and peace. It looks like patience and kindness and goodness and self-control and faithfulness and gentleness. I know those are out of order for those of you that are paying attention. But we exhibit the kingdom of God on earth when we exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, right? Here's the question. When are those easiest to show? When is the fruit of the Spirit easiest to show in our lives? When things are easy, when things are good. When things are good, it's easy to be patient. When my kids are obeying, patience is a breeze. When people are nice to me, it's easy to be kind back to them. When life is smooth, I can be joyful. When people are being faithful to me, I can be faithful to them. I can have self-control when there's not temptation in my way. Here's the question. Don't people that hate Jesus, aren't they capable of that same behavior? When life is good, they are. People that hate Jesus can, can exhibit those same qualities without even knowing who he is. The gospel is countercultural. The gospel is counterintuitive. Love your enemies, anyone? And it's embodied by Jesus into whose image we are being conformed and transformed. And when we submit to that, we exhibit the kingdom of God in our lives. I lament as much as any of you that I fail miserably at submitting everything to Christ. I lament as any, any one of you, any, any, as any of you, I lament that desperately that I don't submit everything to Jesus. And when that happens, I fail to exhibit the power of the kingdom of God. I've missed that recently. We need Jesus' help. We need to glimpse, we need to, we need to stare at the glimpse that has provided us this morning. Exhibiting the Holy Spirit fruit in the face of adversity draws people to the sweetness of Jesus, does it not? It's the aroma of Christ. Do you long for that? Then let's gaze at Jesus this morning. Let's look at him. Let's fix our eyes on what this transfiguration is. Because the truth is, there's not a lot of ways we can describe it with human words. We can just acknowledge this is God incarnate. This is Jesus showing his true nature. Deity is wrapped in a human body. And for a time, he displayed that full on to the three guys up on that hill. It wasn't like Moses. They weren't stuck in a rock and saw the backside, they got the whole thing. I don't, I don't understand how all that works, because God said, Moses, you'll die. But these guys didn't. 
But God can do stuff like that. So words can't adequately describe what happened, but that is what happened. That's the, tra- that's the event, the transfiguration event. Now let's move to this conversation between Moses and Elijah and Jesus. How does Moses and Elijah show us that in spite of whatever this world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for us? What were they doing up on the mountain? Well, their lives point directly to the truth of the Messiah. They point and declare to the truth of the Messiah. Both of these men were forerunners attesting to the very real revelation of Jesus Christ. Law, or excuse me, Moses represents the law and Elijah representing the prophets. If you read through the book of Exodus, you will hear and read accounts of Moses that are very similar. They're mirror images of what we read today. Moses going up with three named people up on a mountain. While he's up there, there's, there's glowing skin. There's God that's veiled in a cloud. There's a voice that's speaking from that cloud. More, more details of that, but very similar passages we find related to Moses in Exodus as we read today. In, in the prophet uh, Malachi in chapter 4 in the Old Testament, it tells us that Elijah will come before the great and awesome day of the Lord. Matthew in his gospel account of the transfiguration, says that the disciples understood that when Jesus said that Elijah had already come, Matthew says that they understood that it was John the Baptist. doesn't say that here in our gospel of Mark, but in, in Matthew it does. That they understood that Elijah was John the Baptist, the prophetic voice in the wilderness. And of course, we know, or we should hopefully know, the entirety of Scripture. The Old Testament and the New Testament is consistent with one another. The Old Testament points to the New Testament. The New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There are a myriad of types and shadows in the Old Testament that point to the, to the Messiah. Adam, a type of Christ. Moses, a type of Christ, many others. Shadows that we see through the law that are shadows of Jesus. Well, the transfiguration casts this shadow all over the Old Testament. All over the Old Testament. So Moses and Elijah show up and they're talking with Jesus. Wouldn't you like to know what they said? We do know what they say. Because it tells us. It doesn't tell us in this gospel account, but it does tell us in one of the other accounts, in Luke's. He says that while they were speaking, or that they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now, they could have been talking about any number of things, and they could have certainly been talking about any number of things specific to Jesus. However, I believe that because we know of the character and the nature of God and who He is, the Father, that, and, and His love for His creation and His desire to save us, particularly through the atonement, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, because, because we know all of that, I believe it's not too far-fetched to say that they're talking about and they are in awe of the glory of the cross and the ultimate effect it would have on mankind. I think that was part of what they were talking about between Elijah and Moses and Jesus. 
Because they knew, Elijah and Moses, they knew that Jesus was the something immeasurably better than anything else that this world has to offer. And here's why I say that. In Luke's account, where he says they were speaking about the departure, and that's how it's worded in your, most of your English translations is departure, but the, the word departure actually means exodus. Actually means exodus, how Jesus was going to leave the earth. So they're talking to Jesus about how he's going to leave. Which means they're talking about his death, but not only his death. They're talking about his resurrection, but not only his resurrection, they're also talking about his ascension. That was a component of the conversation. That's what, that's what Luke tells us. Consider this. We said that the Old Testament has many types and shadows that point to the cross. We mentioned just a couple briefly but Paul talks about in Colossians, in Colossians 2, he talks about these, this idea of shadows. He says that, therefore, no, no, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. So, so things of the law, right? He's saying, let no one pass judgment um, on questions of these things of the law. He said, these are a shadow of the things to come. But he says, the substance belongs to Christ. The writer of Hebrews says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true forms of these realities, which is Jesus, it being the law, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. So these shadows are inadequate in and of themselves. Rather, they point to the substance of Jesus Christ. So these two verses are saying that the only that that only the substance of Jesus makes us perfect before a holy God. Now, how are shadows created? Think about this for a second. How are shadows created? You have to have an object and you have to have a light source to have a shadow. We were taking a walk the other night, it was after dark, and as we approached our house, we live on a corner, a car came behind us and projected our shadows up on the side of our house. I was much bigger on my house than I was here in person, and that was frightening, but that's how shadows work. You have an object, and you have a light, and you have some, something that that is going to actually then project on. That's how shadows are created. The object that casts the shadow that falls throughout the Old Testament as we said, is the person and work of Jesus Christ. If we want to take the analogy even further, the shape of that shadow is the shape of a cross that casts itself all over the Old Testament. And it's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of the Father's nature, that's Hebrews 1, that is the light source. So this event, the the transfiguration event of Jesus Christ is the very radiance that shines and projects the object of the cross on the Old Testament. What we have in our passage today is both the object and the light source. The object and the light source. So, when Moses and Elijah and Jesus are involved in this conversation about Jesus' departure, about his death about his resurrection, about his ascension. I believe that they understand that the reality of the shadow that the transfiguration casts and the part they play in it. I think they realize that. I think that makes sense, that they would understand that they play are played once they once played a big part in what that shadow looks like. 
They know that Jesus is the something that is immeasurably better for us because Jesus is the substance, meaning Paul said that in Colossians, he's the subject, meaning that, that he is the object and he is the light source. Moses and Elijah existed in time and in space as a type of, of Jesus as a shadow of what was to come and now they get to talk to Jesus about he's the fulfillment of all that was in the Old Testament all of it Matthew 5 Jesus says do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets I have come not to abolish them but to what to fulfill them I think that came up in their conversation I think they were marveling at the glory of God and his death resurrection and ascension and what that means for the magnificent atonement, the plan of God to save those of you and me in this room today. Perhaps our names even came up in the conversation. We don't know. It reminds me of the road to Emmaus. Remember Jesus walking with the two men along the road to to Emmaus and the text says that beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to these two men all the scriptures, which at that time would have been Old Testament, all of the things concerning himself. He unpacked all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the significance of the Old Testament and how they pointed directly to this man who was walking alongside the road to Emmaus with them. The conversation the living God wants to have with you this morning is this. It's finished. It's accomplished. It's been done. He's saying, stop letting this life and this world determine your joy. I don't know about you. That's a message I have to hear. That is a message I have got to hear this morning. He's saying, don't let the world determine your joy because it can't. The world will always leave you unsatisfied. Our jobs, our possessions, our families, listen to me, our relationships will always fail us at some point. I'm not saying that's an excuse. That's just reality. We've all experienced that to some degree. In spite of whatever this world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you and me, and it's Jesus. Now we move to the exhortation, the voice of God, the divine injunction. Peter is babbling on about building tents for Jesus and Elijah and Moses because the text said he's scared out of his wits and had no idea what to do. Kind of an amusing little thing, right? Verse 7, he says that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Not just this is my son, but this is my son. Listen to what he has to say. And with that, Elijah and Moses are gone. As quickly as they came, they were gone. Well, why does Peter want to build tents? What does Peter wanting to build, build tents have to do with something immeasurably greater or something better that God has for us. Well, the building of tents or, or tabernacles, also known in the Old Testament as the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. It's probably familiar to those of you that have, have read the Old Testament. In the book of Zechariah, there's an end times significance to the building of tents or the building of booths. I won't read that passage, but it's in, it's in Zechariah. 
uh, which is right, I believe, before Malachi. But there's an end time significance to the building of tents. So it could very well be that Peter was wanting to build these tents for Moses and Jesus and Elijah because he didn't want the meeting to end. Because he sensed that the end was near. He's like, we need to build these tents for these three. Let's stay here. He may have recalled Jesus' words that we heard last week about him suffering and about how they would be required to, to deny themselves and take up their own cross. And he may have been thinking, forget that. The end is here. Let's build these tents and let's do this now. Let's go home now. Forget about the cross. He's thinking, we don't need any of that other nonsense. We don't need the suffering Messiah. We don't need taking up our cross. We can just end it all right now, right here. And you can't blame him for that. Experiencing this amazing event that that words can't possibly describe, the transfiguration, it's the logical thing to feel. It's the logical thing to want. The problem is that's not how God intended it. We know that on this side. Elijah and Moses know that. And of course, Jesus knows it. So God, the Father, gets Peter's attention. And he says, Peter, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Red tree, this is is God's beloved son. Listen to him. Listen to what he's going to say. Because it's important for us this morning. Peter, don't listen to your heart. Red tree, don't listen to your heart. Don't listen to your flesh. Listen to my son. He says, you can't stay up here on the mountain. Peter, that's not how it works. You have to come down because there's more that needs to happen. Danny Aiken is a pastor and a writer and he says this, We will never understand the person and the work of Christ apart from the cross and the resurrection. Leave out the cross and there's no atonement. Leave out the resurrection and there's no victory over sin. In sinful weakness, we would avoid the cross and we would stay on the mountain and make ourselves comfortable. In contrast, Jesus will embrace the cross and ascend Calvary's hill and drink the cup of suffering filled with the wrath of God. You see, the world offers shortcuts. The world offers ease and comfort. The world offers wide and easy paths that only lead to destruction. But the way of Jesus, the way of the cross is narrow. It's hard And those who find it, Scripture says, are few believers, non-believers. You're in this room for a purpose, to hear this today. I firmly believe that. Some of you don't know the Lord. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. We need to hear this message. And if we've heard the message before, we still need to behold His glory. We still need reinforcement. We still need glimpses because we're going to walk out of this room this morning into a whole bunch of other stuff in our lives that we have to deal with. And it may get better and then it may get worse. But Jesus is on the throne. And He has this for us this morning because Jesus is life. The question is, have you found it? Are you too busy building tents Are you too busy being comfortable in your comfortable surroundings? Or have you gladly embraced the truth that this world world has to offer pales in comparison to what is offered by Jesus? You have to ask yourself, what is the voice of God saying to you today, this moment? 
And how will you respond to that truth? In spite of whatever this world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you. And it's only made possible by the cross of Christ. Finally, the realization. So, back to reality. Right? They're coming off the mountain. The whole thing is over now. The glimpse is over. It's brief. Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. Jesus, John, James, Peter, making their way back down the mountain. And Jesus says, don't tell anybody, by the way. All that you just experienced, don't say anything to anyone until I've risen from the dead, which really only confused them even more. And they mention Elijah again. They say, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come? And Jesus says, he does come. In fact, he already has come. And then he changes the subject. He changes the subject and brings them back to reality. And he says, he says, um, how, he says um, how is it that the Son of Man should suffer? It just got real again for those boys. Remember, a glimpse is impermanent. They're brief. They're meant to provide encouragement in the face of adversity or a wake-up call. Glimpses are meant to spur us and encourage us to change directions. But the direction of the cross is not to change. Jesus was to continue to the path of the cross, but your direction may need to change. Your direction may need to change today. The very definition of the word repent is to change directions. To move. To actually with words and with deed, to to move and turn away from sin and what the world has to offer and to move towards the beauty of the cross, the glory of Christ, knowing that we have to take up our cross and follow Him. When God said, listen to my son, this is what He wants us to hear. He wants us to hear that Jesus is to suffer, was to suffer, did suffer, willingly, even joyfully. And it's through that suffering and through his death and his resurrection and his ultimate ascension that we are to have abundant life, satisfaction and joy. Listen, in the midst of all of the trials and suffering that we're going through, in the midst of it, he's not taking us out of it, but he promised that he'll be with us through it. We have to know that. We have to remember that. We have to hold on to that because that's a foundational promise from God. And there are some of you here today that need to let go of what the world is telling you. You need to repent and you need to believe the gospel because in spite of whatever the world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you. And it starts with humbly bowing your knee before the king and repenting. Now, if you're a believer, it doesn't leave you off the hook because our life is a lifestyle of repentance. It's a lifestyle of repentance. We're going to mess up. We're going to sin. We're going to fail people. We're going to hurt people. We're going to say and do stupid, silly, hurtful things. And so we need to repent to Jesus for those. And we need to repent and ask people for their forgiveness. We do that in the context of community. We do that in context of the church. When Jesse said at the beginning that, that what happens here on Sunday is not the primary function of our church, he's right. It's what we do the other six days of the week. It's living in, in community together. And we're going to do things. We're going to say things. 
And we need to have grace with one another. And we need to extend mercy to one another and ask forgiveness. Because the world doesn't see that. That's not what the world typically experiences. The world experiences bitterness. And they, they experience, experience vitriol and hate. Get on Twitter for 10 minutes and see the, see the stuff that's going on there. I want to use a stronger word there because there's, there's just a bunch of ugliness that's going on out there. Among believers. I'm not talking about the world. I'm talking about among Christians. We don't act like we have the spirit of the living God inside of us. So we need a glimpse of that today so that we can go back out these wall, about these doors this afternoon and we can be, I hate the word, be the change you want to see because that's Jesus. But if we have the spirit of God in us, then we can be the kingdom of God to people, which is what they need desperately. As we close out this morning, let me say this. Many of us have had this mountaintop experience, haven't we? Many of us have had that mountaintop experience, and we want to stay there. Right? Jesus, as well as others, often retreated to high places to, to pray, to meditate, to prepare, only to descend back down to what? To the mundane, ordinary, everydayness of life. They didn't stay up on that mountain. It's understandable for us to want to maintain our spiritual high that we get. Whether it's a, a particularly sweet worship experience. Maybe we've gone to a conference. There are conferences every weekend now. Some of them are good. That was a joke. Many are good. And we go and we get, we get fed and we get to worship. We hear from amazing people who God has gifted with the word of God to encourage and exhort. And we experience this great mountaintop experience. Some of the students, you guys have been to camp, you've experienced that, right? In a very real and meaningful way. Maybe we've, we've got it through a time of prayer, but we can't stay there. We're called back down off the mountain into reality to do what? To mingle with those who've never experienced that before. That's the purpose. That's why we can't spend, spend our lives up on the mountain like a monk. We have to come down into reality. And it's not so we can take them back up the mountain either. It's to show them the kingdom of God. To exhibit that fruit of the Spirit that we talked about earlier. So that they can taste and see the goodness of God. So that they can experience the aroma of Christ. And ultimately, so that they would then come to know Him too. And then could actually tell others and be the kingdom to them. 99.999 keep going of our lives are spent in the messiness of life down here in the valley, right? And not up on the mountain. And it's hard down here in the valley, isn't it? It's hard toiling down here in the valley. It's sometimes not a lot of fun. I don't know why God works the way he works. Some of us are exposed to more stuff than others. Some of us are just, our lives are, are tougher than others. They just, it just is. I don't understand why. Perhaps God has gifted those people stronger. I don't know. Maybe not. Not always. Sometimes they're, they're incredibly weak. But God does these things, and he does it for the purpose of displaying what? His strength in them. But he does that through all of us that are believers. So it's difficult toiling down here in the valley. Even your unbelieving friends, neighbors, relatives, Co-workers, even they know that. 
That, that's part of the gospel. That's part of sharing the gospel is we resonate with those that are so far from Jesus, they understand the brokenness of the world because they experience it every day. If you just ask them, they'll tell you. You don't even have to ask them sometimes, and they'll gladly tell you. More than you could possibly want to know, they will tell you, we have the hope. We have the framework of the gospel and of the word of God that tells us this whole plan. It's not how it was meant to be. God is a good God. He's a faithful God. He created you in the image of a holy God. Brokenness came into the world and Jesus entered in to save mankind. And we are on our way. And one day we will, we will leave this all behind. It will be recreated in something new and beautiful and perfect. But right now we're in the mess of it. And God has called us, if we're believers, to enter into that mess. Just as Jesus enters into our mess, into that hard, difficult life where we experience illness and death and relational strain, and anxieties, and all of that to be an agent of hope and reconciliation, to be ambassadors of righteousness. There's a whole other thing I was going to talk about, which is how the church is an embassy. I won't go into it. But there's this idea that the church, we're ambassadors, and so ambassadors reside at an embassy, and embassies represent another kingdom in another place. The church is the kingdom of God on earth. We are ambassadors that represent the embassy of the local church in a foreign place. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept. People with struggles and addictions and temptations, they have questions that they don't seem to have answers to. The answer is Jesus. The answer is the Messiah. The answer is the anointed Holy One of God who died for you and me. And the world desperately needs a taste of the kingdom of God today, right now. As you leave here today, not yet, but when you leave here today in a little while, the world needs to taste and see that the Lord is good. Church, listen. Last word. In spite of whatever the world has to offer, because in a half hour or however long it's going to be, we're going to forget everything that we, that we heard here. I'll forget I even said it. And we're going to walk out there and we're going to forget in an instant who we are and what we've called to be, to be. We need to let this resonate on our heart. In spite of whatever the world has to offer, God has something immeasurably better for you today. And his name is Jesus. Let's pray. God, we are overcome and overwhelmed by your goodness. We don't understand your glory fully. Lord, we want to understand your glory. And you've given us a glimpse this morning, and we thank you for that. As we continue to hear from the word of God, as we continue to worship, Lord, uh, Lord, let our response uh, be one of fixing our eyes on the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that's the only hope we have. Spirit of the living God, go out in the hearts and in the minds of of those hearing this message, not just today, but perhaps those that will one day hear them uh, on, 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 on our website or our app, Lord, and prepare hearts, Lord. Anything that was said, wipe away that you don't want to be said. And let us hear the message that you want us to hear. We trust you in these things. We thank you for these things. We pray in the name of Jesus.
the way that we're going to respond today, Lane began reading from um, Lamentations earlier. You, you recall the first 30 verses, like 17, I can't remember what it was. Kim's going to read the end of that. Right? This, is, this is part of, of, our, of where we're traveling today. Right? We're, we're afflicted, we're wounded, we're hurt. We come into this place, into this space this morning, and, and, and we're not, some of us are not into good play, in good places. There's a lot of stuff going on in our lives that are not, it's not fun, it's ugly. Some of it's evil. The enemy is coming around us and, and not wanting to see Jesus get the glory. So we move from this affliction and this lament of affliction to the hope of the gospel, the glimpse of glory. And Kim's going to read from Lamentations. It's the back half of what Lane just read. This is our response. This will be on the screen. So as Kim reads this, read it with her in unison. Let's stand up as we read the Word of God, as we respond. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence when it is laid on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes, and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever, but though he cause grief, he will have compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Red Tree Church. Visit redtreechurch.com for more information.